Hello, good morning. It is Eric Erickson here. Beautiful, chilly day around the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We need to begin uh, with the biggest story of the day, which is the media is not treating as the biggest story of the day. And I actually think that this is the first moment, you know, the media for... How many years now the media has been saying uh, it's the end of the uh, Trump administration? They're almost giddy every single day at the the prospect of the end of the Trump administration. And uh, we're not at the end of the Trump administration. In fact, the odds are very likely that Donald Trump will be on the ballot in uh, November 2020. And in fact, the Democrats are in meltdown right now over the prospect that Donald Trump could win re-election in 2020, despite all of their flaws and, and, and concerns and whatnot. Well, okay. Yes, uh, but, 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 but there is a problem for the Trump administration all of a sudden, uh, and the problem is not Bill Taylor. We will spend a lot of time on Bill Taylor today, trust me. Uh, The problem, though, is not Bill Taylor per se. The problem is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell did something yesterday that was actually pretty extraordinary. If you know how Washington, D.C. operates, Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader. If the Republicans lose the Senate, he will become the minority leader and be in Chuck Schumer's place while Chuck Schumer is in his place, and he does not want that to happen. And right now, polling around the country suggests if the election were held today, the Republicans would lose the Senate. This is the first time this has happened. Six months ago, all the polls suggested the Senate was secure. The Republicans did not have to worry about it. Well, as the impeachment wins have shifted, among other things, uh, the Senate becomes in play. And uh, the only thing that will get Senate Republicans to uh, betray President Trump, so to speak, is the chance they might lose the Senate. Well, it might be happening. Mitch McConnell was confronted yesterday by a group of reporters, one of whom asked him about his phone call with the president. If you will recall, President Trump told Mitch McConnell, or the president told reporters that he had talked to Mitch McConnell about the president's call with Ukraine's president, and that Mitch McConnell told him the call was perfect and was innocent. Here's Mitch McConnell uh, talking to reporters yesterday. Well, let's see. The Ukrainian president was perfect and innocent. Do you believe that the president has uh, handled uh, this Ukrainian situation uh, We've not had any conversations on that subject. So he was lying about that? <laughs> you have to ask him. I, I don't recall any conversations with the president about that phone call. I, I don't recall any conversations with the president about that phone call, that phone call being his call with Ukraine's president. Yeah. Has said that you told him that his phone call with the Ukrainian president was perfect and innocent. Do you believe that the president has uh, handled uh, this Ukrainian situation uh, We've not had any conversations on that subject. We've not had any conversations on that subject. Y'all, this is actually a really big deal. I would argue this is a bigger deal than Bill Taylor's uh, testimony yesterday. When Mitch McConnell directly contradicts the president of the United States, which he rarely does, McConnell directly contradicted the president shortly after the president got elected, uh, and then they they entered a, a truce, so to speak. The president put Mitch McConnell's wife in charge of the Labor Department and or the Transportation Department, and that was it. The two have spoken. The two speak regularly. The president started praising Mitch McConnell in the last year or so. And now to have this happen is a little bit concerning. 
Uh, and it's concerning because McConnell is not interested in the welfare of the presidency. McConnell is not interested in the president of the United States at all. Mitch McConnell is interested in preserving the Senate majority. Mitch McConnell is interested in confirming judges as quickly as possible. Mitch McConnell is interested in saving the judiciary from the left. And when he says something like this, he publicly breaks from the president. He's not willing to say the president's a liar, but think of the other ways the president that he could have said this, could have responded. He could have said, I'm not going to get into that. He could have said, I'm not going to talk about the conversations between the president and me. He could have said, um, I'm not taking questions at this time on the subject. We're here to talk about something else. He could have said a lot of things. Instead, he said, I didn't talk to the president about this. After the reporter says, the president says, here's what you said about his call. Um, and he all but says the president's a liar. He allows the reporter to extrapolate that the president is lying. He himself won't call the president a liar. He's not going to do that. That would be too explosive. But he certainly was allowing the charge to be set. This comes on the heels of the testimony with Bill Taylor. Now, listen, I need to say something about Bill Taylor here. Some of my friends, and I've, I've got very good friends in the conservative press and in conservative media, and I already see a number of them trying to attack Bill Taylor as a partisan Democrat. And I'm not going to go there. Um, I can defend the president on numerous things. In fact, uh, I have long said I didn't think his call with Ukraine's president sounded impeachable. I think Bill Taylor's phone call or Bill Taylor's testimony is deeply troubling. But I'm not going to attack Bill Taylor. For those of you who don't know who Bill Taylor is, Bill Taylor was in the 101st Airborne in Vietnam. He left Vietnam and became a career public servant uh, in foreign relations. He worked for President Reagan's White House. And then he became an advisor to William Howard Taft. Uh, not William Howard Taft, the president, but William Howard Taft's great-grandson. William Howard Taft's great-grandson was the ambassador to NATO for George H.W. Bush. William Howard Taft had worked for Ronald Reagan and then worked for George H.W. Bush, helped him transition, became the ambassador to NATO. And with Bill Taylor, Bill Taylor helped build the coalition that helped George H.W. Bush win the Gulf War. Bill Taylor helped build that coalition. Bill Taylor went into public service uh, during the Clinton administration, was recalled by George W. Bush. He became the ambassador to Ukraine for George W. Bush. He left again when Obama became president, but ultimately the Obama administration had to call him back in and uh, had, to, had to help get him to help with Middle East affairs. President Trump called Bill Taylor back to be the ambassador to Ukraine because he was not confirmed by the Senate again. Uh, he was listed as the charge d'affaires, uh, which is essentially the chief uh, officer of the embassy uh, in lieu of an ambassador. They referred to him as the acting ambassador. Um, this is, he's not a man whose character I intend to assassinate. 
And he is a man who went into the White House adamantly against the Russians. He went into the White House uh, to help the president and had assurances that the president would send Ukraine what it needed to combat the Russians. Let me read from you now some of Bill Taylor's transcript. This will be an I report, you decide matter. On August 16th, this is now, we are several weeks removed from President Trump's conversation with uh, M, uh, President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine. On August 16th, I exchanged tech me- text messages with Ambassador Volker in which I learned that Mr. Yermak, who is the uh, one of the acting uh, or senior foreign policy representatives of Ukraine's president, had asked the United States to submit an official request for an investigation into Burisma's alleged violations of Ukrainian law, if that is what the United States desired. A formal U.S. request to the Ukrainians to conduct an investigation based on violations of their own law struck me as improper, and I recommended to Ambassador Volker that we stay clear. To find out the legal aspect of the question, however, I gave him the name of a deputy assistant attorney general whom I thought would be a proper point of contact for seeking a U.S. referral for a foreign investigation. By mid-August, because the security assistance had been held over for had held for over a month for no reason I could discern, I began to fear the long-standing U.S. policy of strong support for Ukraine was shifting. On August 27th, Ambassador Bolton arrived in Kiev and met with President Zelensky. During their meeting, security assistance was not discussed. Amazingly, news of the hold did not leak out until two days later on August 29th. I, on the other hand, was all too aware of and still troubled by the hold on security assistance. Near the end of Ambassador Bolton's visit, I asked to meet him privately, during which I expressed to him my serious concern about the withholding of military assistance to Ukraine while the Ukrainians were defending their country from Russian aggression. Ambassador Bolton recommended I send a first-hand cable to Secretary Pompeo directly relaying my concerns. I did it on August 29th, describing the folly I saw in withholding assistance. I heard that soon after, the secretary carried the cable with him to a meeting at the White House focused on security assistance to Ukraine. The same day I sent my cable to Pompeo, Yermak contacted me and was very concerned asking about withholding security assistance. On September 1st, three days after my cable to to Secretary Pompeo, President Zelensky met Vice President Pence at a bilateral meeting in Warsaw. President Trump had planned to travel to Warsaw, but at the last minute had canceled because of Hurricane Dorian. Just hours before the Pence-Zelensky meeting, I contacted Mr. Danielik and let him know about the delay of U.S. security assistance, that it was an all-or-nothing proposition in the sense that if the White House did not lift the hold prior to the end of the fiscal year, the funds would expire and Ukraine would sense nothing. I received a readout of the Pence-Zelensky meeting over the phone from Tim Morrison, who was a national security aide during which he told me President Zelensky had opened the meeting by asking the president, of, the vice president about security cooperation. The vice president did not respond substantively, but said he would talk to President Trump that night. The vice president did say President Trump wanted the Europeans to do more to support Ukraine, and he wanted the Ukrainians to do more to fight corruption. During the same call I had with Mr. Morrison, he went on to describe a conversation Ambassador Sunlin had with Mr. Yermak at Warsaw. 
Ambassador Sunland told Mr. Yermak that the security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue a Burisma investigation. I was alarmed by what Mr. Morrison told me. This was the first time I heard the security assistance was conditioned on investigations. So he texts uh, Sunland, and they have a back and forth. Sunland, you need to understand, testified before Congress uh, last week and said he did have conversations with Bill Taylor. But Bill Taylor, or that uh, Sunland did not recall his conversations with Mr. Taylor. So Sunland admits he had the conversation, but he cannot recall the the uh, contents of the conversation. He cannot recall what he told Bill Taylor. He cannot recall what Bill Taylor told him. He has a memory of the conversation, but no memory of its substance. That's going to come back to haunt him. Here's the reason. Because of Tim Morrison. Tim Morrison is a national security aide, works in the White House as a national security aide, helps on uh, Ukrainian matters. Bill Taylor calls Tim Morrison on September 2nd. I briefed Mr. Morrison on what Ambassador Sunland had told me. Ambassador Sunland had told um, Bill Taylor that uh, the money was going to be withheld and that there was more to the withholding of the money than just meeting the White House. What Mr. Morrison then told Sunland, or what Morrison then told Taylor, was that according to Tim Morrison, Sunland had a phone call with the president, and the president told Sunland Ukraine could not get any of the money unless they investigated Joe Biden. That's the phone call between Morrison and Sunland. And that's a big deal. Now, again, you, you do need to understand that tying this into Joe Biden was a problem. And making it about Biden at all um, becomes an issue where it raises the prospects of impeachment. The president, according to Morrison, Morrison, I'm, I'm reading now from the transcript, Morrison went on to describe a conversation Ambassador Sunland had with Mr. Yermak. This is the Ukraine representative. Ambassador Sunland told Mr. Yermak that the security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue the uh, Burisma investigation. I was alarmed by what Mr. Morrison told me about the Sunland-Yermak conversation. This was the first time I heard that the security assistance was dependent. So he texts Sunland. Morrison writes back. Morrison tells him that Sunland said the president made it very clear it wasn't just Burisma. It was also Joe Biden. The president insisted, this is it, President Trump insisted, according to Morrison, he described a phone conversation between Ambassador Sunland and President Trump. Mr. Morrison said he had a sinking feeling after learning about the conversation from Ambassador Sunland. According to Mr. Morrison, President Trump told Ambassador Sunland he was not asking for a quid pro quo. But President Trump did insist President Zelensky go to a microphone 
and say he is opening investigations of Biden and 2016 and that President Zelensky should want to do this himself. Mr. Morrison said he told Ambassador Bolton and the NSC lawyers of the phone call. There are all sorts of problems with this paragraph in Bill Sunla- in Bill Taylor's testimony. Problems for those who want to confirm it, but problems for those who want to deny it as well. Let's work through this key paragraph when we come back. Welcome back. Uh, if you want to call in and be a part of the program this morning, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I got to read you again um, this passage from the um from bill taylor and you need to understand that this wasn't a leak per se uh what the the house investigators have been doing knowing that this stuff is going to leak anyway because it's in writing they've been allowing or they they have been releasing the opening statements of the individuals testifying before the house and this is rather important you need to understand why um both sides get copies of the printed opening statements everyone is asked to bring not just come and talk but to actually bring an opening statement and they read that statement uh, as their testimony Uh, that statement is then released to everyone so everyone kind of understands the premise of this they then they go behind closed doors during the entire thing even the reading of this testimony which they release Uh, but then the questions are asked based on this testimony and in any other area that the house members want to go republicans and democrats alike ask the questions um the republicans are not shut out of the process um it is investigators for both sides that ask questions uh i'm reading uh from page 12 of bill taylor's printed testimony this is his sworn statement that he gave to open his testimony before the house on september 5th i hosted senators johnson and murphy for a visit to kiev during their meeting we met with president Zelensky. his first question to the senators was about the withheld security assistance my recollection of the meeting is that both senators stressed the bipartisan support for ukraine and washington was ukraine's most important strategic asset and that president Zelensky should not jeopardize that bipartisan support by getting drawn into u.s domestic politics I had been making and continue to make this point to all my Ukrainian official contacts, but the push to make President Zelensky's publicly commit President Zelensky publicly commit to investigations of Burisma and alleged interference in the 2016 election showed how the official foreign policy of the United States was undercut by the irregular efforts led by Rudy Giuliani. Two days later, on September 7. I had a conversation with Tim Morrison in which he described a phone conversation earlier that day between Ambassador Sunland and President Trump. Mr. Morrison said he had a sinking feeling after learning about the conversation from Ambassador Sunland. According to Mr. Morrison, President Trump told Ambassador Sunland that he was not asking for a quid pro quo. But President Trump did insist that President Zelensky go to a microphone and say he is opening investigations of Biden and 2016 election interference and that President Zelensky should want to do this himself. Mr. Morrison said that he told Ambassador Bolton and the NSC lawyers of this phone call between President Trump and Ambassador Sunland. The following day on September 8th, Ambassador Sunland and I spoke on the phone. He said he had talked to President Trump, as I had suggested a week earlier, but that President Trump was adamant that President Zelensky himself had to clear things up and do it in public. He said there was no quid pro quo, but there would be stalemate unless Zelensky did this. Um, 
A quid pro quo is a favor for a favor. You want the money? You got to do this. There's a problem, but there's something else here too you need to understand. Thing that will raise the most questions. All right, we're back. Listen, I I don't mean to be boring the audience this morning. I, I find this to be very, very important, and I, I'm trying to do this as, as factually and chronologically as possible for everybody uh, because I, I you know how these things work. Uh, I, I'm a partisan, too. I was an elected Republican. Uh, I've worked in Republican politics. I was a campaign operative. I managed campaigns uh, around the country. I worked for the president, uh, President Bush, um, for his, uh, I was a volunteer lawyer for his campaign. Uh, I've worked in partisan politics. I got a lot of friends of mine who are Republicans in Congress. Heck, I, I, I got to help get a lot of these Republicans in Congress elected. Um, and I understand the spin game and the need to defend, and I get that. And, and there are ways to defend. I, I think some of the defenses of the president out there are really dumb. Uh, there are ways to defend this, um, and they're not doing it. I, you know, that's kind of the thing here. This, this is one of the things that frustrates me about all this. There are ways to defend the president. There, some of them may not be very good ways, um, but there are ways to defend the president. And, and his, his supporters are flailing about trying to come with excuses. And, and the way they're trying to go about it is they're trying, in most cases, to just attack the credibility of the people testifying. It's real hard to do that with someone like Bill Taylor, who has uh, immense street cred in the foreign policy community and among Republicans, going back to the first Bush administration where he helped build the coalition uh, to oust Saddam Hussein out of, out of Kuwait. Uh Here's here's part of the problem. Um, the president, according to Sunland, Sunland said repeatedly that the president said there's no quid pro quo. There is no quid pro quo, but Zelensky had to do certain things to get the money, and that is a quid pro quo. A quid pro quo is a legal term. You can say, I did not murder the person, um, even though you put the bullet through their head. Uh, and you still murdered the person. You, you can say you didn't do it, or, or you can say you're not going to do it, um, but the person has to have a bullet through their head. And it's still murder, even though you say it's not murder. You can say, um, I'm not going to make a quid pro quo with you, but in order to get this money, you must go before a camera and do these things. Uh, and, and oddly enough, the president emphasizing that it needs to look like it was... Uh, President Zelensky should want to do this himself. In other words, we, we need to, to get Zelensky to decide he needs to do this himself as opposed to we need to make him. Well, here, here's ultimately the problem. The money was released. But uh, I got to scroll down to a, another, another key paragraph here. Uh, Ambassador Sunland, this is on page 13. Ambassador Sunland tried to explain to me that President Trump is a businessman. When a businessman is about to sign a check to someone who owes him something, he said the businessman asked the person to pay up before signing the check. Ambassador Volker used the same term several days later when we were together at the Yalta European Strategy Conference. I argued to both that the explanation made no sense. The Ukrainians did not owe President Trump anything, and holding up security assistance for domestic political gain was crazy, as I said in my text messages to Ambassador Sondland Volker on September 9. Finally, this is this is the this is the biggest issue here. Finally, I learned on September 11th that the hold had been lifted and security assistance would be provided. 
after I learned the security assistance was released on September 11th, 2019, I personally conveyed the news to President Zelensky and Foreign Minister uh, Prisitko. I again reminded Mr. Yermak of the high strategic value of bipartisan support for Ukraine and the importance of not getting involved in other countries' elections. My fear at the time was that since Ambassador Sunland had told me President Zelensky had already agreed to do a CNN interview, President Zelensky would make a statement regarding investigations that would have played into domestic U.S. politics. I sought to confirm through Mr. Danieluk that President Zelensky was not planning to give such an interview to the media. Well, Mr. Danieluk initially confirmed that on September 12th, I noticed during a meeting on the morning of September 13 in President Zelensky's office that Mr. Yermak looked uncomfortable in response to the question. Again, I asked Mr. Danieluk to confirm there would be no CNN interview, which he did. On September 25th, at the UN General Assembly session in New York City, President Trump met President Zelensky face-to-face. He also released the transcript of the July 25 call. The United States gave the Ukrainians virtually no notice of the release, and they were livid. Although this was the first time I had seen the details of President Trump's July 25th call with President Zelensky, in which he mentioned Vice President Biden, I had come to understand well before then that investigations was a term that Ambassadors Volker and Sunland used to mean matters of the 2016 election and to investigations of Burisma and the Bidens. Now, I bet you didn't catch that significant point in there. On September 25th at the UN General Assembly session in New York City, President Trump met President Zelensky face-to-face. He also released a transcript of the July 25 call. The United States gave the Ukrainians virtually no notice of the release, and they were livid. Although this was the first time I had seen the details of President Trump's July 25 call with President... I I need one of those record scratch, sort of, or hit the brakes sound effects. This was the first time I had seen the details of the July 25th call. On September 25th, This is actually going to be the thing that raises all the eyebrows. This this is actually the thing that if I were in the Trump administration, more than any, listen, Sunland, Ambassador Sunland sounds like a blithering idiot. Sunland, you should understand, was a hotelier who gave a lot of money, did not like President Trump. In fact, uh, Gordon Sunland backed Jeb Bush. When Jeb Bush bailed on the campaign after spending millions of dollars, Sunland went into the anybody but Trump camp. Sunland does not like Donald Trump. Sunland insulted Donald Trump publicly in 2016 and basically called him a blithering idiot. Sunland himself sounds like a blithering idiot. This is important because Sunland gave lots of money to the president's inauguration and then began lobbying for the ambassadorship to the European Union, which he got. But Sunland doesn't like the president. Sunland's a Jeb Bush guy. But Sunland seems to be doing some damage control, if only to protect himself in all of this. But here's the relevant key fact. Why? And this this is this is going to be the question. This is going to be the most important question for the Democrats to ask. And this is going to be a question. In fact, it already is a question. Uh, I got a, a text message right here that has come through uh, from a friend of mine in the House of Representatives who is telling me that I am actually spot on uh, in this particular point. 
This is going to be the question people behind closed doors are asking themselves. It is the question, according to this member of Congress who's texting me, already is the question they're asking themselves. Bill Taylor is our acting ambassador to Ukraine. Bill Taylor, since March of 2019, has been agitating for a phone call between Zelensky and Trump. He continues through April, May, June, and July to agitate for a meeting between the presidents. He tells Rick Perry there needs to be a meeting. He tells the senators there needs to be a meeting. He tells the ambassadors there needs to be a meeting. He tells the national security advisor there needs to be a meeting. He tells the secretary of state there needs to be a meeting. There is finally a meeting on July 25th, 2019 by phone between the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine. And nobody told him. Nobody told Bill Taylor about the phone call. Now, you can say this is this is just incompetence by the White House staff, and a lot of people will believe you, but there's a problem here. It appears, based on what we know so far, this is where the Democrats are going with this. And, and you need to understand, this is what Republicans in the House are thinking as well. Is this a situation where... They rush to put the transcript into the secure locker so quickly that no one could tell Bill Taylor what was said. Is, is, that, is that what happened? And if so, why? Why is the big question? And there are lots of plausible answers uh, for why this happened. Uh, but I got to tell you, I, I need to play this soundbite. This is Dan Bongino on Fox last night talking about uh, Bill Taylor and this. And uh, we need to dissect this. And I, I will give you, I will articulate for you the best defense I can offer, I think, for the president, which I think is, is a better one than what these guys are doing. But listen to this. Yeah, I mean, think about what happened today, Sean. Bill Taylor and this testimony, which was supposed to be revelatory. Well, what did we really find out? that the so-called quid pro quo for the military aid, that Taylor admitted that the Ukrainians didn't even know the military aid was held up until August. Now, for the liberals watching, we have a tough time with dates, calendars, and chronology. The call was in July, which means it's a really bad attempt at extortion if you don't tell the people you're extorting them. Sean, another takeaway from this testimony today. Taylor's admitted he didn't even see a readout of the call. So again, you, me, and Geraldo now have more information about the call than Bill Taylor did because he never even saw the transcript. And keep in mind, this is also the guy who was answered in a text by Gordon Sondland that Sondland had spoken to the president and said, the president said, let me be crystal clear. There is no quid pro quo. Only to a liberal does that mean there is a quid pro quo or a media type. That's the only translation a liberal understands of no quid pro quo, which is just bizarre. Um, I think Bongino is making everybody's point for them. Why was Bill Taylor not given a transcript of the phone call? I mean, Bongino, you just heard him say, we, we know more about the call than Bill Taylor, the ambassador, does. Um, this is problematic. Um, now, the question is, and, and here, this goes to the relevant defense of the president. Did Bill Taylor know about the phone call or not? Did Bill Taylor know about the phone call or not? If Bill Taylor knew about the phone call, 
then the question becomes, why did Bill Taylor not inquire about the details of the phone call? That becomes relevant because that's on Bill Taylor, is it not? That's on Bill Taylor. And and we don't know. We, we do not know from the story. And, and I've read through here, and it does not, I, I'm assuming my, my assumption is that Bill Taylor was not told the phone call had happened. That's my assumption, but I don't know. And that's a relevant question. If Bill Taylor knew the phone call had happened, then he needs to say so. And he needs to say why he did not make inquiries about it. Now, oh, wait, nope, 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 whoa, wait, whoa, whoa, nope. I back up. A buddy of mine who's listening uh, told me to look on page eight. Let me read you page eight. On July 20th, I had a phone conversation with Ambassador Sunland while he was on a train from Paris to London. Ambassador Sunland told me that he had recommended to President Zelensky that he use the phrase, I will leave no stone unturned with regard to investigations when President Zelensky spoke to President Trump. On July 20th, I had a phone conversation with Mr. Danielik, uh, during which he conveyed, and Danielik again is an aide to Zelensky, during which he conveyed to me that uh, Zelensky did not want to be used as a pawn in U.S. re-election campaigns. The next day, I texted Ambassador Volker and Sunland about President Zelensky's concerns. Here's the paragraph. On July 25, President Trump and President Zelensky had the long-awaited phone conversation, strangely, Even though I was chief of mission and was scheduled to meet with President Zelensky along with Ambassador Volker the next day, I received no readout of the call from the White House. The Ukrainian government issued a short cryptic summary. During a previously planned July 26th meeting, President Zelensky told Ambassador Volker and me that he was happy with the call but did not elaborate. President Zelensky then asked about the face-to-face meeting in the Oval Office as promised by President Trump on May 29th in a letter. After our meeting with President Zelensky, Ambassador Volker and I traveled to the front line in northern Donbass to receive a briefing from the commander of the forces of the line of contact. Arriving for the briefing in the military headquarters, the commander thanked us for security assistance, but I was aware the assistance was on hold, which made me uncomfortable. Ambassador Volker and I could see the armed and hostile Russian-led forces on the other side of the damaged bridge across the line of contact. Over 13,000 Ukrainians had been killed in the war, one or two a week. Although I spent the morning of July 26 with President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials, the first summary of the Trump-Zelensky call that I heard from anyone inside the U.S. government was during a phone call I had with Tim Morrison, Dr. Hill's replacement at the National Security Council on July 28th. Mr. Morrison told me the call could have been better and that President Trump had suggested that President Zelensky or his staff meet with Mr. Giuliani and Attorney General William Barr. I did not see any official readout of the call until publicly released on September 25th. Okay, there we go. So did Taylor try to get a copy of the transcript? Was Taylor blocked from getting a copy of the transcript? 
did, did Taylor push forward? The, these are things the White House could bring up. These are things the White House could say in defense. Uh, that Bill Taylor had the opportunity to request the transcript, and he didn't request the transcript. Bill Taylor obviously knew because of his background how the transcript would work, and Bill Taylor should have known because of his, his background uh, that he could get a copy of the transcript. Uh, why didn't he do so? That th- These are things the White House could raise. They're, they're not raising them. Uh, and that raises whys for Republicans and Democrats in Congress is why wasn't Taylor given the readout? Um, and why did it take two days to get a summary of the readout? Questions. This is the problem with the Taylor testimony. It raises a lot more questions. And it gives many more names of people. And it also plays into this anonymous book. You know that the person who wrote the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times they're coming out with a book now. I have some strongly held views on that. Uh, I think this person needs to be rooted out and fired. Um, and and but more than that, this person should be resigning. There's 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 some concerns now for the White House in with Bill Taylor's testimony, and and they need to be on their A game. They need to not have people out on TV saying, "Well, we know more about this call than him." Yeah, we do, because he didn't get the transcript. The question is. Did he ask for the transcript? Okay, listen, I, I feel in the spirit of full disclosure, I could tell you, I should tell you, I wrote a book a couple of years ago. I, you know, I should start giving free copies away, shouldn't I? Um, I should get some of these books and give copies away to people. Um, so two years ago, I wrote a book, Before You Wake. It's not a political book. Um, it, essentially, my wife and I both had a near-death experience, and I wanted to write a book for my kids of things I would want them to know and their favorite recipes. Uh, if something should happen to their mom and me, uh, I would want them to know about it. And um, so I wanted to give away, uh, or I wanted to write the book. I should get some and, and give them away, I guess, so you can read it. Um, it's just, it's life lessons for kids, um, things you want your kids to know. And uh, my my agent is a guy, two guys named Keith Urban and Matt Latimer. They run a group called Javelin. And since then, they've kind of become the premier political agency in in Washington for people to write books. Um, uh, They've got Tucker Carlson is one of their clients. Um, Donna Brazile is one of their clients. And now Anonymous is one of their clients. Anonymous is the White House staffer who who wrote the anonymous column in the uh, New York Times that basically I'm the resistance inside the White House. I'm actively working to undermine the president and doing so to save the country because what the president wants to do is is awful stuff. And now Anonymous is writing a book and didn't take it in advance and is giving all the money to charity. I got to wonder who Anonymous is. Uh, but more importantly, is Anonymous still on the job? Because I think Anonymous, it's time for Anonymous to quit. Because frankly, I think the White House can make their entire defense around Anonymous. I do. I think the White House can make their entire defense around Anonymous. Though The White House defense is essentially that the President of the United States long suspected people inside the White House were trying to undermine a new direction in foreign policy. The president saw repeated leaks from inside the national security and intelligence community and foreign policy community designed to understand him uh, steering the ship of state in a different direction from his predecessors. 
This was a clear red flag to the president uh, that there were people inside the bureaucracy that he could not fire due to the Civil Service Act who were set out to oppose his agenda and oppose the direction that he had been elected by the people lawfully to chart. Anonymous released an op-ed in the New York Times uh, confirming, in fact, that there were people inside the administration who were opposing the President of the United States. Therefore, the President of the United States had to deploy back channels like Rudy Giuliani and trusted advisors like William Barr to ensure that the President's agenda was carried out. The President is the Chief Executive Officer of the United States. His employees, who Congress prohibited him from firing, were obstructing the direction he wanted to chart. This is an issue that should be put before the voters in November of next year. It's not impeachable. This actually is the undermining of the president by his own employees. And in fact, the New York Times now has an article out uh, in praise of the deep state and the obstruction of the deep state. You can disagree with the direction the president wants to chart. You can even believe the president of the United States wants to chart a direction that favors Russia. But it's his right to do it under the Constitution. And if you don't like it, you have an election in November of 2020 and you throw him out of office. But to undermine him through the bureaucracy actually is something that should not happen in our constitutional system. And there's your defense. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to spend some time this hour actually laying out uh, some of the defense that the president of the United States might be able to make in impeachment. If If you're here and you haven't heard the news Let me bring you up to speed real quick on the Bill Taylor testimony from uh, before Congress. We have his written statement. Um, Bill Taylor was the ambassador to Ukraine. Bill Taylor essentially, well, Bill Taylor is an upstanding guy, just so you understand. Um, There are uh, people within the Trump administration cautioning the Trump administration not to try to do a character assassination on Bill Taylor because he's actually a Republican. Uh, Bill Taylor worked uh, in for Reagan for both Bushes. Uh, he worked inside the foreign affairs for the State Department. He was the ad- advisor to William Howard Taft the fourth, uh, the great grandson of President Taft. Uh, that Taft was the NATO ambassador who helped build the coalition for uh, purging Saddam Hussein from Kuwait during the first Gulf War. Um, Bill Taylor was George W. Bush's ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, the, the Trump White House called him back and sent him to Ukraine. They needed someone to go in after the a previous ambassador had been fired, so they sent him back in. Uh, Taylor wanted this phone call between the president and Ukraine's president. Uh, He wanted it done. Uh, It was done. Uh, Bill Taylor was left out of the loop on Ukrainian assistance for a time. He found out about it. Uh, He knew something was going on. And and essentially what Taylor said to Congress, and we have his written testimony, is that the uh, Ukrainians could not get the security assistance unless the president of Ukraine held a press conference and before cameras and microphones said they were investigating Joe Biden. Uh, The president of the United States told Gordon Sundland, the EU ambassador, this was not a quid pro quo, but that must be done for the money to flow, which actually is the definition of a quid pro quo. Um, Sundland told the House investigators he had no memory of his conversation with Bill Taylor, that uh, he did talk to Bill Taylor, 
but he had no recollection of what he told Bill Taylor. Bill Taylor says, yes, we talked, confirming Sunland, and fills in the gap of the things Sunland says he can't remember. Taylor says their conversation was that uh, Sunland confirmed the president had told Sunland the money wouldn't flow unless Biden was investigated and 2016. That's where we are uh, with the Taylor investigation. That's why the Taylor testimony is so bad. Uh, the bigger story, I think, from yesterday and, and, and this whole week is that uh, Mitch McConnell is refusing now to stand shoulder to shoulder with the president. In fact, when CBS News asked him about uh, the president saying McConnell confirmed his call with Ukraine's president was perfect uh, and there was nothing wrong with it, McConnell said he never had a conversation with the president on that. When the reporter said, so are you saying the president's lying? McConnell says you'll have to talk to the president about that. Um, that's that's a big red flag. That's a bigger red flag than the Taylor situation uh, to have McConnell say that. Uh, Mitch McConnell has stood shoulder to shoulder with the president throughout all of this stuff. He's now walking away from the president. He's also walking away from the president on the lynching remarks from uh, that the president made uh, on Twitter about what was happening in the House of Representatives. Um, the president today compared this impeachment to a lynching. Is that how you would characterize this inquiry? As yeah, Given the history in our country, I would not uh, compare this uh, to uh, a lynching. That was an unfortunate uh, choice of words. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the lynching stuff. Democrats have used this as well, and, and the Democrats who are attacking the Republicans now on, on it are hypocritical because they have repeatedly used the phrase lynching, including going back to the um, to the Clinton administration and that impeachment. Uh, I, I've got a few more thoughts on there. I'll get there. But I, I want to... I want to articulate a defense of the president that the president's team is not making, and I think they should. And you can disagree if you want. You can disagree with the the defense if you want. But I think this is the best case they have right now in light of Bill Taylor's testimony. Uh, Bill Taylor, by the way, uh, knew the call with the president happened, and they didn't give him a readout of the call. Two days after the phone call, uh, a national security aide named Tim Morrison called Taylor and told him the call was bad, uh, that it didn't go as well as it should have gone, and they wouldn't give Taylor the transcript. Taylor uh, did not get the transcript until all of us got the transcript on uh, September 25th, two months, exactly two months after the phone call happened. Uh, this is going to raise all sorts of whys. Uh, why did Bill Taylor not get the transcript? Why was he not given a full briefing on the phone call when he's the one who wanted the phone call? Uh, why did all these things happen? And Republicans, and in fact, I've gotten a, a text message from a Republican member of Congress saying this is a big question. Here's my defense that I would offer if I was defending the president. And, and again, uh, the president does not have a war room, and I think they need a war room. The president does not have a rapid response team right now on this, and they need a rapid response team. The defense I would give for President Trump is as follows. Prior to even getting into the White House, it became very clear that there was an effort to undermine the legitimacy of his presidency, First, by claiming the Russians stole the election, then by claiming the Russians stole it with him, then by the circulation of the Steele dossier evidence and, and the exposure of the Steele dossier evidence, trying to make it claim uh, that the president was um, undermining United States foreign policy with the Russians when that wasn't true. The release of the Steele dossier and the subsequent leaks uh, in the Mueller investigation show there are people inside the administration who are out to get the president. 
the FBI investigators and the FBI investigation, the Peter Strzok, the Lisa Page documents, the Andrew McKay behavior, the James Coleman behavior, all show there were career bureaucrats within the government, some of whom couldn't be fired under the civil service laws, who were out to undermine the president. The leaks of transcripts with phone calls with the Australian prime minister and others also show that the president of the United States had careerists inside the government trying to undermine him. And why were they trying to undermine him? They were trying to undermine him because the president of the United States was elected by the people to chart a new course in foreign policy that career bureaucrats did not like. And though he is the president and it is his constitutional right to do that, the careerists decided to obstruct him. The only way around this was to set up a, a shadow government, if you will, of people to advise the president from the outside, including Rudy Giuliani, who could convey the president's messages to foreign leaders and, and authorities around the world without the careerists in the government finding out about it who were trying to sabotage the president. This leads us to Ukraine. The president had begun locking away transcripts after several leaks. The president felt the need to lock this transcript away as well because the president was very interested in corruption. Going back to 2016, the president, based on the Mueller report, the Steele report, and others, was convinced that Democrats in 2016 were trying to sabotage him using the government and using foreign powers, including people in Ukraine, to undermine his election and then delegitimize his presidency. He didn't know he, who he could trust in government. Along comes an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times saying that, in fact, there are people inside the government who are working together to undermine the presidency and the president's foreign policy and domestic policy and national security goals. And this confirmed to the president everything he had long suspected, which caused him to redouble his efforts to keep as many people as possible out of the way and out of knowledge of what he wanted to do for American foreign policy, because, again, he was lawfully and duly elected to do what he pleased in foreign policy for the United States that he thought was in the interest of the country. And these people opposed to it because it was so different from prior administrations decided to obstruct him. It was not that the president is a tool of Russia. It's that this president decided that other presidents had gotten it wrong and he wanted to change it. Just like he wanted to move the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv when everyone said it was impossible. It would cause war. It would cause mass terror. It would cause all sorts of problems. And he did it and they were proven wrong yet again, time and time again, when the president has charted new courses, all the people and all the experts who said bad things would happen were wrong, and this is just another example of that. The president, based on all of this situation, based on anonymous, based on the leaks, based on all these things, relied heavily on Rudy Giuliani and brought in trusted people from the outside, including William Barr, the attorney general, to make sure that the president's orders were lawfully carried out. That's all this was. The president is absolutely convinced people inside government were undermining him. The president is absolutely convinced that the Democrats used government to try to block him in 2016, and when they failed, they used the Steele dossier an insurance policy. The Steele dossier was uh, put together with people, including people in Ukraine, and he wanted to find out about that and the corruption. And when he found out that Joe Biden's family was enriching itself off the government at the exact same time the Democrats were accusing the Trump family of enriching themselves off government, he thought it was worthy of investigation to show the hypocrisy. And that's all this is. There was no quid pro quo the president wanted to make sure Ukraine was investigating corruption and that corruption went back to 2016 and that corruption went back to Hunter Biden getting on the board and that corruption went back to information the president learned through his third party sources that Biden had engaged in a cover up when he was in the White House to protect Hunter Biden from prosecution. 
had the president had people around him who weren't trying to sabotage him, but were instead giving him their candid and honest advice in private and not running to the media when he disagreed, he wouldn't have had to use these third parties. But it was the deep state bureaucracy that required him to do it. And in fact, we now have a New York Times op-ed in praise of this very same deep state for trying to scuttle the Trump administration, everyone ignoring the fact that he was lawfully elected and therefore was allowed to do these things and therefore was allowed to change course in American foreign policy, obstructed and stymied along the way by bureaucrats who go to the New York Times and confirm they're doing it and write anonymous books confirming they're doing it and then have the New York Times cheer on these anonymous bureaucrats who are stymieing his efforts that he was lawfully and duly elected and sworn into power to be able to do. The entire deep state is working against the president and there was no one he could trust except Rudy Giuliani and William Barr and a handful of others around him. And they had to work to keep as much of it in the shadows because they didn't know who they could trust. And that's not his fault. That's the Democrats' fault. And that's the deep state's fault. And therein is the defense. If I were president of the United States, I would make. To the extent that this stuff looks bad, it looks bad because the president had no knowledge and no ability to trust people within his own administration because they were out to scuttle a change in foreign policy that they themselves did not like. To the extent this looks bad, it is because the president of the United States is trying to chart a new foreign policy for the United States, untied to previous foreign policies of the United States, and the bureaucracy within the deep state cannot wrap that around their brain and execute it. Therefore, the president had to find a new way to get it done. The end. I would build the entire defense of the president of the United States around that. The fact that they're not, the fact that, I mean, the the defense is that abuse of power is not a crime impeachable under the Constitution. That's actually Matt Whitaker, the former attorney general. That was a point he was making today on TV. That's That's not a good defense. The good defense is that the bureaucracy is now admitting it's trying to undermine the president. So the president had to operate outside normal channels because he didn't know who he could trust. And that's not his fault. That's their fault. But, you know, they're not doing this. That That's, that's kind of the crazy thing here is they're not actually making that defense. They should be making that defense. I think that defense gains them sympathy among some Republicans who might otherwise be willing to impeach them. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily help in everything either. It doesn't necessarily help in everything because the president did, in fact, according to Gordon Sunland, well, according to Bill Taylor reporting on Gordon Sunland, I realize it's hearsay, but we're not in a court of law. This is acceptable to investigators to begin an investigation. Bill Taylor says, Gordon Sunland told him, the president said, unless Ukraine investigates Joe Biden, I'm not giving them the money. And that looks bad. The president can say it was all because he had heard through third parties that Joe Biden had committed corruption while in office, but there's a problem here with the timeline that the president's team is going to have to get around. And that problem with the timeline is very simply that the president didn't care about this issue until Joe Biden announced he was running for president. And only then did he care about the Biden issue. And so there will be people who look at that and say, this isn't about corruption. This is about Joe Biden. And if it's about Joe Biden and it's not about corruption, it becomes about the president trying to persuade foreign leaders 
to involve themselves in the 2020 election, and there will be members of Congress who say that is an abuse of power. Remember, with Nixon under the Articles of Impeachment, one of the Articles of Impeachment was that Richard Nixon abused his power to pressure others to investigate his political opponents. By the way, if you want my defense of the president, um, and I am going to pass it on to friends of mine in the White House to make sure they see it, I I do think it ties together all the loose ends better. Uh, I will um, put it out there on the podcast as a standalone. Um, If you want it, uh, text the word show to 33777. Uh, You'll also be able to go to youtube.com slash EW Erickson and get it. Right now, I want to go to the phones. Uh, Tom has been waiting patiently in Gainesville. Tom, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, and I really appreciate what you've just been saying. And as a corollary to that, I'd like to add the following. Didn't the Barack Obama administration use taxpayer dollars for an unprecedented secret investigation against a political adversary? That included U.S. and foreign intelligence assets and a bogus and bogus evidence paid for by Clinton and the DNC. Without that illicit investigation, there would be no reason at all for Trump to be looking into these matters, would there? See, this is exactly the point, uh, and I think the president needs to weed this into. There is some credible, we don't have confirmation uh, that the Obama administration actually spent any money on this stuff. What we do know for certain is that parts of the Obama administration were tipped off to the Steele dossier, and that allowed them to make certain assumptions about Trump and to involve themselves in certain ways in investigating Trump. And and this is, Tom, I think this is the, the nugget here that I think the Trump administration should seize on for their defense is that when the we know the Steele dossier was bogus now. In fact, the whole P-tape thing, and, and excuse me if you got kids in the car with you or whatnot, uh, we know the P-tape exists, but we also now know from the Mueller investigation that it was fabricated. So it's, it's a fake tape that exists. And we know that this stuff existed. We know that people made up evidence about the president, including this whole P-tape nonsense, and that the Obama administration, when they heard this information, Every single thing President Trump did was then viewed in that frame, and I would argue it's still ongoing. We now know that the president and his team never helped the Russians. We know the Russians wanted to interfere in the election, but we know the president's team didn't help them, and yet every single core belief of the Democrats and every way that they view every action of this president has in turn been interpreted as the president is an agent of Vladimir Putin. And it all goes back to the Steele dossier and the way the Steele dossier shaped the Democrats' views of the president. And we know it's crap. Uh, we, we know the entire Eric. Steele dossier was made up. Um, that's a problem. So this this is something moving forward where I think this administration needs to build this case out and make an overarching interpretation of the uh, of what happened they need to tie it all together and they're not uh, this is one reason I, I my understanding is that they're still not building or still have not built a comprehensive war room uh, dealing with impeachment they still have not in fact uh, strung everything together in a way that 
they can articulate a common defense. You still have an outside legal team. You've got an inside team. You've got the political advisors, and they're not all sitting around a table on a daily basis trying to get together uh, and push out points. Uh, and the Bill Taylor stuff, my understanding as well, is that the Taylor conversation kind of kind of thrown them for a loop. Uh, Taylor is is really hard to go after credibly uh, because of his reputation. He he's really hard to go after because of. Um, he, he, just his reputation and respect Republicans have for him. And I think the way you've got to do that is to essentially admit, yes, the president was running a foreign policy off the books, so to speak, but it wasn't a foreign policy off the books because he was doing Russia's interest. It was because he was doing what he thought was in the best interest of the country. And the Democrats continued constantly to undermine him within the administration. And in fact, uh, if you don't believe him, hey, Anonymous wrote an op-ed saying they're trying to undermine him from within the White House. Uh, Y'all, this is, I think it's the best defense the president's got. And I admit uh, it's not the best defense um, because he's got some problems here. And one of those chief problems is, in fact, uh, he did not care about the Biden issue until Joe Biden became a Democratic frontrunner against him. And the moment Biden did that is when the president started pushing Ukraine stuff and asking Ukraine, the asking Ukraine's president to go before a TV camera with a microphone and say he was investigating Joe Biden isn't a good setup for the president. It's not a good look for the president and it raises all sorts of questions and tons of questions will be raised about why Bill Taylor was not briefed in detail on what happened. Particularly, you know, they could say they thought he was a source, but they got to make this defense and they're not. Welcome back. Yes, indeed. As you heard, we do take calls on this program and you can call in 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number if you want to call into the program. We do have news uh, we need to get to beyond the Bill Taylor situation. Uh, and we'll circle back to that and uh, the anonymous stuff. Uh, there's actually a report out. This is, I find, very interesting. Um, the CEO of Dick Sporting Goods is looking at running for president. I, I know, I know. I know, I know, um, and I'm I'm trying to be charitable here. <laughs> the, yes, the the CEO of Dick Sporting Goods would like to run for president of the United States, uh, and surprisingly, you should know that he is a Republican, which I would have never guessed, uh, given his gun stuff. Um, I'm trying to. Where did this report go? Um, the Politico has this story that he wants to run for president. And I got to tell you, given Dick Sporting Goods' situation with guns and, and what they did with guns, I'm thinking that this guy is not going to actually be able to make the case for uh, running for president of the United States. Yeah, here's the story. Yes, from Politico. Sorry, I, I closed the link accidentally. Um, Ed Stack is his name, the CEO of Dick Sporting Goods. He's a longtime Republican donor. He's testing the waters for a third-party presidential bid that could scramble the dynamics. No, it won't. Various messages were presented to a focus group in southern Wisconsin this week centering on the billionaire businessman along with three with possible three-way matchups between Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren. The focus group, according to a source who took part in the testing, ran through varying themes including stack and heavily focused on his example of showing leadership. 
by halting the sale of assault-style rifles. Assault-style rifles at all of Dick's Sporting Goods stores after the Parkland, Florida shooting. The prospect of a well-funded third-party candidate could have a significant impact in a race where Trump is expected to be unable to win a majority of the popular vote. In 2016, Trump won 46% against Hillary Clinton. Now, polls have shown him consistently below 50%. A source familiar with Stack's thinking says Mr. Stack enjoys running Dick's Sporting Goods and has no plans to run for an elected office. The message testing told a different story. Those in the group were shown several short videos of other candidates, including Biden, Warren, and former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, a fellow billionaire who explored a presidential bid, but viewed eight or nine videos that included stack messaging, according to a focus group participant. The focus group member who presented paperwork to verify participation declined to be named. Among the questions posed to the roughly two dozen participants, would you be open to voting for a third-party candidate? Not all of the feedback was good. Focus group members mentioned that if Biden's getting the criticism he looks old ed stack didn't look young either ed stack didn't have the charisma it would take to attract a coalition the session concluded with participants asked to vote on sample ballots that matched up to stack biden donald trump and then stack elizabeth warren or trump stack has taken on a higher media profile coinciding with the release of his book it's how we play the game he also took aim at Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for failing to make headway on gun reform. See, this is the deal killer right here. If you're going to run a third-party effort to defeat Donald Trump, you can't be anti-gun. Let me explain the dynamics of this, having run campaigns. There are basically 24% of the public is going to vote overall. Uh, when, when you break down the numbers, uh, you, you wind up getting down to essentially you've got to persuade about 3 to 4% of the overall public to vote for you. And the reason being is because, well, 24% of the public, they're going to vote Democrat. When you get to, to break down the voters up to who all is going to vote, 25% of them will vote Democrat. 24% of them will always vote Republican. The Republicans have about a percentage point disadvantage there. When you further break it down uh, among the leftover people, um, the people, there will be some who will always vote third party. They will always vote third party. They pride themselves in voting third party. There will be some who only vote on a particular core issue. There will be some who vote only on abortion, either pro-life or pro-abortion. There will be some who only vote on the environment, and typically they all vote Democrat. There will be some who only vote on the issue of guns. you got to peel enough of those people away. The problem for Ed Stack is if he runs, he's not going to get any of the Second Amendment people. There are some Second Amendment people out there right now who don't want to vote for the president because they're really mad about the bump stock ban. And they're really mad that the president was flirting with background checks. And they really have convinced themselves. And I'm talking about a minority people. But in, in, in a race like this, every vote counts. Literally every single vote counts. There are some who have convinced themselves the president, if he gets a second term, he will betray them on guns. And they're not going to go vote for the Democrats. They're just going to sit home. Ed Stack entering the race will probably help those people decide they will go vote for the president. Ed Stack, frankly, if you're looking at that, he wants to stop Donald Trump. He doesn't want to be president. He wants to stop Donald Trump. 
but Ed Stack's entry in the race doesn't help him. He can say all day long that he's a Republican. Uh, the reality, though, is that Ed Stack helps the Democrats because of guns. Ed Stack is a gun control advocate. Uh, the Second Amendment voters will come out in force against him. He will not pull people away from Donald Trump. To the extent he pulls people away, it's Republicans who were going to hold their nose and vote for a Democrat. They'll no go vote for Ed Stack. And what does that do? That deprives Democrats of votes. Ed Stack helps Donald Trump because he deprives Democrats of votes. They funnel through to the third-party candidate. The president can win again by losing a majority of the vote. The president can win in a plurality. This is Ross Perot uh, with Bill Clinton and uh, George Bush, except the problem is he hurts the challenger. He doesn't hurt the incumbent. There are a lot of people out there who do not like Donald Trump who will vote for the Democrat or stay home. Many of the people who stay home will ultimately be badgered by friends to go vote. And they will vote against the president because they don't like the president. But if they vote for Ed Stack instead of voting for Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, or Hillary Clinton, they're hurting the Democrat. They're not helping the Democrat. So Republicans may want to encourage Stack to run. Republicans may actually want a third-party challenger there right now to pull votes away from the Democrats, particularly with the ongoing concern of the Democratic radicalism, uh, the ongoing concern that the Democrats are too left, and they are too left. Let's just acknowledge that the Democrats are too far left, and there is growing concern about them being too far left. Here's a voter, random voter from Iowa talking to CNN. What do you think will happen if one of the more progressive candidates like Warren or Sanders wins the nomination? Well, I'm very afraid that uh, they'll lose and we'll have four more years of Trump, which I hope doesn't happen. And elaborate who you're talking about when you say free stuff. I'm talking about Bernie. I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren and how how college is going to be free, how health care is going to be free. I'm sorry. We can't do that. Uh, yeah, we can't do that. that, that that's a problem. That's a problem for the Democrats. They are too far left, and there are growing signs of it being too far left. I, I played this yesterday. It's worth playing again. This is Frank Brunei from the New York Times, who is a liberal's liberal, a progressive's progressive, talking about the slate of candidates running for the Democratic nomination. It's not just the donors who are concerned. You have two front runners who are both extremely flawed and extremely vulnerable. Joe Biden has seemed very rickety on that debate stage. He's not raising money the way he should. He's spending too much money, doesn't have cash reserves. And Elizabeth Warren is to the left of a lot of Democratic voters and a lot of general election voters. So I think the, the panic here is real. What's sort of silly is the notion that there's someone out there in the mm -hmm. forest who's going to solve all of the problems. You know who wants to solve the problems? I wish I was making it up, but I'm not. Hillary Clinton. Um, okay, let, let's do worst case scenario on Donald Trump right now. Let's do worst case scenario on Donald Trump. He's impeached and Mitch McConnell marches down Pennsylvania Avenue and says, Mr. President, you got to go. The votes are there in the Senate to toss you. Uh, we can save this thing from Hillary Clinton if you leave. And Donald Trump gives a speech and says, you know what? I made America great again. We need to keep making America great again. The only way to keep making America great again is for me to step aside and let Mike have it. We need to take it to the Democrats. And so Pence is the Republican nominee against Hillary Clinton. 
many of the Republicans who won't vote for Donald Trump suddenly look at Mike Pence and say, eh, he's not Clinton, and they come back. Many of the Republicans who say, I'll never, ever, ever, never vote for anyone except Donald Trump, they look at it and say, I don't want Hillary Clinton. So um, I'm thinking that this ain't good for the Democrats if Hillary Clinton gets in, whether the president stays or not. Listen, there are, remember, in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost She ran a terrible campaign. The Russians didn't steal the election. She ran a terrible campaign, and most Americans dislike her. And now she's looking at the Democrats floundering around thinking she's going to get in. But there's Hillary Clinton light. Hillary Clinton light is Elizabeth Warren. She is as unlikable as Hillary Clinton. Now, she may be a lovely, listen, the people around her say she's a lovely person. The people around Elizabeth Warren say she is a good person. You just got to get to know her. Here's the problem. That's the same thing they said about Hillary Clinton. The exact same thing they said about Hillary Clinton was you just have to get to know her. If you get to know her, you'll like her. She's a very likable, lovely person behind the scenes. She's so warm and funny and charming, and we just don't see that on the campaign trail. People need to see that on the campaign trail. This is the exact same thing going to be hard to do and yet they're going to try uh now as we move forward with this situation the democrats of course are are going to drag out impeachment and i told you all this yesterday uh and i know it sounds like a broken record um but it it needs to be repeated that the democrats are going to push this off until january They're going to bring out the impeachment of the president. It'll happen closer to Christmas, as I've been telling you. People ridiculed me for saying so. I'm telling you, it's going to happen closer to Christmas. And now Democrats are coming out and confirming that what I was told last week and told you guys was right. Which means the impeachment trial will be in January. And we know from the rules of the Senate and we know from Mitch McConnell himself, he can't avoid an impeachment trial. Mitch McConnell will not be able to avoid an impeachment trial. He must have an impeachment trial. That'll happen during the Iowa caucuses. Just so, if you don't understand this, and and this this is something that needs to be, um, you need to know, the caucuses are different from primaries. In a primary, what happens is, well, you all, if you're listening pretty much anywhere in the nation, uh, you have a primary. You go on election day and you cast a ballot. And that's that's what you do. That That's what you do. Um, you go cast a ballot and, and then you go home. You're, you're done. Uh, it takes you, depending on the line, it can take you 10 minutes. If you live in DeKalb County, it, it can take you five hours because they're incompetent. And, and it, it's the Democrats running the board of elections who've screwed up, but Brian Kemp gets the blame. Uh, but that's what you do. You, you show up, you, you punch a button on a screen, you say who you want to vote for, and you leave. That's it. With a caucus, it is far different. With a caucus, the candidates barnstorm the, the, barnstorm the state, knocking on doors, getting people to commit to go to caucuses, and then they have field operatives, and the field operatives collect the names. Essentially, you do a door-to-door operation. Uh, so the candidate or the candidate surrogates go door-to-door in communities, and they knock on doors and say, will you go to the caucus, and will you support my candidate? Let's say, let's just use Elizabeth Warren. Yes, 
I will go. I will go to the caucus and support Elizabeth Warren. So then you follow up the next week and you say, you said you would go to the caucus. Here's the address of where the caucus is going to be. And you do that to everyone. The thousands of people who have said they'll go. You follow up with the address and the date and the time. On the week before the caucus, you follow up and say, hey, you said you were going to go. Just want to make sure you're still going to go. Yes or no. If no, you funnel them off and the candidate themselves may call. The presidential candidate, who's also by this time got to worry about New Hampshire and South Carolina, is going to call and say, hello, I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I really want you. What can I do to get you to go to the caucus? And the candidate will try to persuade. Particularly in Iowa, the candidates are very hands-on. That's what Iowa expects. So you convince them to go. So they go to the caucus meeting. It is at night. It is at a schoolhouse. It is snowing outside with five feet of snow on the ground already. And you got to be there all night. When you go to the caucus, you sit in a room and the candidates make their pitches. But it's not the candidates. It's the candidate surrogates for that particular area. And they come in and say, I want you to vote for Elizabeth Warren. I realize she is thoroughly dislikable on the campaign trail, and she's not very warm, and she's trying it, and she's coming across as inauthentic, including, by the way, this week, saying she loves Waffle House when there's no Waffle House within any, any within hundreds of miles of where she lives. But she says she likes Waffle House. So will you please vote for Elizabeth Warren? And all the candidates stand up, they make the pitches. Uh, Bernie Sanders' candidate gets, uh, his surrogate gets up and speaks in Russian. They don't understand what he's saying. The fallback surrogate speaks in, in Chaikom. They don't understand that either. Finally, the third person speaks up and says, Green New Deal communism, and that's Bernie Sanders' pitch. Joe Biden's person gets up and says, I was Barack Obama's uh, vice presidential candidate, and I was his vice president, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Sold! And they all make their pitch. And so then the the actual people who are at the caucuses, they've heard the pitches from the candidates, and the pitches are fairly uniform throughout all of the precincts of all of the counties of the state. They divide up in the room, and who has the most people? And while they're doing this, you can say, oh, I, 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 there aren't enough people in my Sanders field. I better, I, Elizabeth Warren's my fullback. Let me walk over here now and, and be with the Warren camp instead. Oh. Lo and behold, Elizabeth Warren has the largest crowd of people in the caucus. She wins this precinct. And you do that through all the precincts of all of the counties of the state of Iowa. And that's your caucus. You're there for hours. You're there for hours. And here's the thing. If the impeachment trial happens during the caucuses, Elizabeth Warren can't participate. Kamala Harris can't participate. Bernie Sanders can't participate. Advantage Joe Biden. Advantage Joe Biden. Maybe Pete Buttigieg too. Maybe advantage to him. If the impeachment trial spills over into January, that's time on the ground because the rules of the Senate say that an impeachment trial requires the presence of the senators every day, six days a week, beginning at noon in the Senate. Why? Because the senators participate in the Senate impeachment trial in a very particular way. How so? I'll tell you when we come back. I tell you, uh, with the Georgia legislature convening in January, you're going to want to be on there uh, because I'll be sending out text messages to you and, and emails saying, hey, you need to call the legislature now, providing you the phone number and all uh, as the legislation advances or does not advance in the Georgia legislature. So text ARMY to 33777. Sign up to be an activist. Uh, when the legislature meets, you're going to want to be involved. Um, here's what the Senate does in an impeachment trial. It is a very particular role. In fact, you know, if, if you read the, um, if you read article one in impeachment, uh, in fact, let me, 
Article 1, Impeachment, Constitution. Let me read you the language. Um, da, 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 da. The United States Constitution says, quote, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments, but no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Um, that is Article 1, uh, Section 2 of the Constitution. And... Um, it is a rather big deal that it is the Senate that does this, but here's the thing. What exactly does the Senate do? Let me read you more precisely the, the full thing. Um, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, there shall be an oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall, shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not exceed further than removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, according to the law. That, again, is where we get the idea that the President President of the United States cannot uh, be indicted while he is uh, sitting president of the United States. But what happens? What, what do they do? Well, the founders of our republic, many of them participated in drafting the Constitution, and upon drafting the Constitution, many of them went into the House and Senate. So the way we learn what they intended by impeachment is we look to see what the founders of the country did when they were elected under the Constitution they wrote. And what we discover is that the very first impeachments began in, in 1797, uh, not too long after this country um, became a country and we started using the Constitution instead of the Articles of Confederation. And when that happened, um, again, it went into operation in 1789. And so it was eight years after the Constitution was uh, initially enacted that the Constitution, uh, that they began doing impeachments. And there were a number of individuals in the, con in the uh, Congress who had been involved in writing the Constitution. And what did they recommend and how did they do it? Well, the senators sat as jurors and the House of Representatives tried the case before them. In other words, the House of Representatives sat as a grand jury and collected a bunch of evidence and built articles of impeachment. And then members of the House of Representatives were appointed to try the case before the Senate. And the senators sat as jurors. And just like in any, any trial, the jurors have to be there every day listening to the testimony. They didn't have the right to question. They had to sit there passively and listen the entire time while others made the case. And it was the Senate that acted as jurors. If you've ever sat on a jury, that's what the Senate will do. And that's why they They've got to be there every single day. They can't miss to go campaign. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, thank you for joining me. I, a buddy of mine just sent me this clip during the commercial break. Um, a kid at an NBA game, uh, they're doing the little dance cam thing where they show all the kids in the audience who are dancing around. Uh, during the game, and the kids are holding up different shirts for their favorite players, and they go to one kid who holds up his shirt for his team and then flips it around quickly. 
and it is a um, it, it's a shirt uh, to stand with Hong Kong, uh, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. It says uh, it's absolutely it's at the Clippers game. Uh, it, it's absolutely hilarious to watch the kid. He's got the Clippers shirt and immediately turns it around and it says stand uh, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And you can see the cameraman jerk the camera uh, to get it away from the kid as quickly as possible. <laughs> Man, I'm so proud of people who are continuing to do this thing. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal has now stood up on, on the China situation. We as American people, we do a lot of business in China, and they know and understand our values, and we understand their values. And one of our best values here in America is free speech. We're allowed to say what we want to say, and we're allowed to speak up about injustices, and that's just how it goes. And if people don't understand that, that's something that they have to deal with. But, you know, I just think... Thought it was unfortunate for you know both parties, and then you got people speaking when they don't know what they're talking about. But you know, Daryl Morey was right. Whenever you see something wrong going on anywhere in the world, you should have the right to say that's not right, and that's what he did. And but but again, you know, when it comes to business, sometimes you have to tiptoe around things. But again, our values, we understand our values, and here we have the right to speak, especially with the social media. We're going to say whatever we want to say when we want to say it. Uh, Good for Shaquille O'Neal for pointing that out. Uh, Now, Charles Barkley has come out in defense of the... In the same conversation, Charles Barkley uh, rises to the defense of um, LeBron James and the NBA. Well, I had a problem because the Rockets are pop... They're the most popular team. If anybody else had sent a tweet, it probably would... We would have raised my brows. But because the Houston Rockets and their affiliation with Yao Ming... They're the most popular team in China. So that was the first thing he should have thought about. Like, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for the entire Rockets organization. And like I say, because of Yao Ming, the Rockets are by far and away the most popular team in China. You can't come to my country and make money and insult me. We don't get to impress our values on other countries. Oh, that's my first thing. Secondly, listen, I thought what happened was unfair. Darren Morrow had the right to say it, but he didn't look at the big picture. But I thought what happened to LeBron was unfair because LeBron was caught in the middle for three reasons. Number one, LeBron makes a billion dollars a year from Nike. Nike makes six billion dollars a year in China. The NBA makes billions of dollars a year in China. All these other American companies make money in China. Why is it up to the NBA, Adam Silver, LeBron James, to ruin their financial situation when all these other companies are allowed to make money in China? You know, speaking of LeBron James, uh, last night he um, stormed away during the national anthem, um, danced off. Uh, Daily Caller has this video up of him last night. Uh, walking away uh, while the national anthem is still being played, and people are wondering if China put him up to it. Listen, I, first of all, I, I gotta I gotta commend uh, people for continuing to keep the story alive. Stories like this usually die quickly, and it's it's a good thing that people are continuing to put pressure on this because it is a big deal. Um, I, I got issues with what Charles Barkley said. I, I got it. And I, I understand his position that why is it that the NBA is, is being put upon here when other companies are making money? Uh, why is it that uh, Daryl Morey 
who runs the most popular team in China is the general manager can do this when clearly people will presume he's speaking for the team. He should understand the fallout and he shouldn't have done it. Um, I get that. I, I do. Uh, and people are, are badgering the NBA here because of how the NBA responded. Um, they, but they are focusing on Apple. You know, Tim Cook of Apple is, has taken over the chairmanship of a board at a, at a university in Beijing. And people are questioning it. But this started with the NBA. So, of course, people are focusing on it. But I got a problem here. What Charles Barkley is essentially saying is that we should be, we should turn a blind eye to morally outrageous things if it might cost people money. And I think think he probably speaks for a lot of people, even people who will publicly disagree with him if they're called on it, would privately kind of agree with what he's saying. We live in an age where people are encouraged to make money and to do what they can to make money. And more particularly, we increasingly live in an age where capitalism has been separated from morality. You know, capitalism and communism are competing uh, economic ideologies. Communism becomes more overarching in that it becomes a not just a, a an economic system, but a political system where there can only be one party and everything must be for the good of the party. Uh, capitalism is just an economic system, a free market. China has adopted some of the, those free market reforms from capitalism while preserving uh, communism. They, they've wrapped capitalism inside communism. And uh, you can see the fallout of an, uh, a capitalism devoid of morality by looking at China. You, you know the body exhibits? There's one in Atlanta. I think I've mentioned this on this program. Uh, this is the the exhibit in Atlanta where um, you you've got a situation where the um, the bodies are they're put in some sort of resin, uh, plasticine resin, but it's actually human bodies, and you can see the musculature, you can see the bones, uh, you can see their teeth, you can see the tendons, and they're well preserved. There have been ongoing allegations. F- fairly credible allegations you should know that these are bodies that are more often than not political prisoners in China and others, dissidents in China. Uh, There are reports out now from Chinese gulags that prisoners in these gulags have their organs harvested uh, for other, for rich Chinese citizens. That's right. In China, the idea is that everyone is equal, except that's not true. In China, uh, the free market has taken precedent. And in so taking the precedence, uh, the free market now kind of reigns supreme. And uh, people in China are allowed to get rich as long as they're, they show unbridled fealty to the communist regime, they can get rich. And the communist regime could turn on them at any moment. So everyone has to be careful. But these exhibits around the world that people pay money to go see, those exhibits, they're credible allegations that the exhibits are of people from China who have been killed by the Chinese, often in prison, sometimes maybe not, uh, religious dissidents and others. The, these are their bodies that you're seeing. 
And now the company, of course, denies very strenuously that that's what this is. You should know that. Uh, but there are credible allegations, and these allegations have continued to surface over time. And now we have this report of someone who escaped from a gulag talking about how uh, political prisoners were sometimes killed um, if there was a rich Chinese person who needed their kidney or needed their lung or needed their liver. They could be killed. And sometimes in gruesome fashion, uh, the, the killings happened. Uh, sometimes quickly killed. Uh, they didn't even know what they were doing, walking into a room and immediately killed, so their body didn't have time to react and and produce uh, e- e- any hormones or anything uh, from extreme excitement, any adrenaline that could affect the organs. Um, it's just horrifying stuff. And this is capitalism inside a communist regime that is devoid of any morality. And and I, I don't. You can only extrapolate so far. But this is something with with Charles Barkley that uh, Daryl Morey cost them money, so he shouldn't say the right thing because he cost them money. And we see this in this country uh, uh, growing time and time again that something may cost someone money, therefore we should say nothing. Look at the Boeing situation with the Boeing 737 MAX. We now know there were people who had problems, but they were worried about the bottom line. The accountants were in charge more than the, the designers. And so they kept quiet on some issues that they didn't think would really be a problem, but they cut corners. And in cutting those corners, they cost people lives. And no one wanted to speak up because they needed to help the bottom line. Capitalism devoid of morality is no better than communism. When you set aside the right thing to do morally, because you're focused on the right thing to do for the bottom line, you're no better than the Chinese. Because that's what the Chinese are doing. You set aside what's right and wrong for the bottom line of the Communist Party. And I think Charles Barkley has this wrong. And I think Shaquille O'Neal has the winning argument here. When you see something wrong, you should speak up. Many of the greatest outrages in human history in the modern era happened because good people didn't speak up. They were worried about their job. They were worried about their family. And, and um, by the way, being worried about your family, completely understandable. I, I totally get people who, who don't want to speak up because they're worried about the safety of their family. But if you're worried about your family's livelihood, if you're worried about money, ultimately, I, I think there's a problem there. People should not be more worried about their income than they are the right thing. And we're here as a country. I, I think Shaquille O'Neal takes the right position that when we see injustice anywhere in the world, we have the right to speak up and we should. I think that's the right position. I think he's in the minority. I think Charles Barkley is actually uh, takes the majority position. It's convenient right now for Americans to attack China, but look at the American corporations who are embedded in China. And then look at the one one tech company that, that's getting pooped on by Congress is Facebook right now. Mark Zuckerberg is actually testifying in Congress right now while I'm here talking. Some very bizarre questions from members of Congress who clearly have no idea what Facebook is or what it does. But um, it, he is being attacked. And, and by the way, Facebook deserves uh, some criticism. Facebook deserves some serious criticism out there for things it does related to privacy. And in that regard, I think Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, is right. But I think he's wrong in attacking Facebook for, for China and, and privacy in that regard because Facebook made a conscious decision to avoid China because China asked of it too much that it felt it was doing wrong. 
Facebook was happy to comply with some of the local government rules in China on censorship and allowing the Chinese government to monitor what was being said online so they could block things from happening. Facebook said, we're not going to block it, but we've got a tool you can use. And when the Chinese tried to make it more expansive and it became clear that China wanted to be able to target citizen groups through this, Facebook said, you know what, we're actually not going to go into China. They gave up a revenue stream, a multi-billion dollar revenue stream, because they didn't want to go into China and have China use Facebook's own tools to target its citizens. And they should be commended for that. There's a lot to criticize Facebook for. But that, I think, is not one. And full disclosure here, Facebook did sponsor my resurgent conference this past August. Uh, and they, they were one of the sponsors. I invited them uh, and was very happy to have them. I, there were certain groups I did not invite, including Twitter. I, I declined to have Twitter be a sponsor of the event. I, I didn't want their money. I didn't want them there. I, I don't trust that company. I actually trust Facebook more than I trust Twitter. Um, but even Facebook, there are concerns about money. There, there was a leak of, of some guys at, at Facebook who a kid clearly spent a bunch of his parents' money on Facebook and he should not have. And there was a big debate whether or not they should give the refund, the money to the family. Um, the, the kid was going to be in serious trouble. He accidentally did it. Um, and when you're looking at the bottom line and you're putting the bottom line ahead of what's right and wrong, I begin, I think you begin to twist your soul. And we see a lot of corporations in this country that are twisting the souls of their employees and have twisted souls on their executive boards because they want to advance their cause to make more money. And they're not willing to ask themselves, are we doing the right thing? We need more people to ask if they're doing the right thing. And frankly, we need more incentive to have people speak up and say this is wrong. And we just don't. And that's a problem. Welcome back. The phone number here, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the number. Uh, I, I got to go to Matt Whitaker. Uh, yeah, we, we, we do need to do this. Uh, Matt Whitaker was who the president had as the acting attorney general. Um, there were some problems there. He went on Fox News to try to articulate a defense of the president. It, it didn't go so well. Listen to this. Sort of abuse of power is not a crime. Let's fundamentally boil it down to, you know, the, the Constitution is very clear that this has to be some pretty egregious behavior. And they cannot tell the American people what this case is even about right now because they have to do it in secret. Sort of abuse of power is not a crime. Um, three quarters of impeachments conducted by Congress, going back to the very first impeachment in 1797 when the drafters of the Constitution were almost all of them members of Congress or in some elected capacity, three-quarters of the impeachments of the House of Representatives have been about abuse of power, not about actual statutory crimes. And you need to understand that going forward. You know, one of my... Yeah, I'm going to go on a tirade now. Yes, this is tirade time. Um... I believe there is truth. I believe there is real truth. I believe that uh, we can listen to facts and obtain truth most times. And in the cases where we can't learn the absolute truth, we can get very, very close to the truth. 
I believe that there is no such thing as your truth and my truth, uh, that there is one truth. When we see a, in fact, I, I, I went down a, a, a YouTube rabbit hole the other day where I discovered there was a compilation of video from Russia. You, you know, in Russia now, uh, there is a, a, most people who drive in Russia have dashboard cameras now. The reason is because in Russia, uh, it is such a corrupt country now uh, that someone can pay the police, someone can cause a wreck and then pay the police to say that they themselves were not the ones who caused the wreck. It was it was the person who did not cause the wreck. And if they bribe the police enough, the police will um, do the, the police report that way and people will get away with it. Or they'll, they'll lie in court. They'll do all sorts of things. Uh, it, it, Russia has become a deeply corrupt and dishonest nation. It has a lot to do with the communist regime being a regime, not to go full circle here, uh, but a regime where the, the country was not a, a Christian country. It was not a country with morals. It was a country where everything was about the state and people were encouraged to turn in each other. Um, it, right and wrong became a view of, of what was right for the state. Well, that state no longer exists, so right and wrong is about me. I am the state now. Um, and so you've got a, a deep corruption issue in Russia. So people have taken to putting dashboard cameras on their uh, on their cars to record everything in front of them. In some cases, even stuff behind them gets recorded so that if there's a wreck, uh, the, the other person can't bribe the police. You've got a dashboard camera to, that shows what happened. And, and I went down this rabbit hole, and in, in this rabbit hole, there, there was a, it was a compilation of videos you recall several years ago, a massive meteor uh, shot across the sky in Russia and had such a sonic, sonic boom that... Um, windows in buildings miles and miles away were shattered when the uh, concussion wave of the sound of the meteorite hitting the ground uh, hit them. It, was, it caused all sorts of damage. Um, people were severely injured in, in the debris of the glass flying through these buildings because of the sonic boom. And this uh, YouTube video showed compilations of people's dashboard cameras, lots of people in cars. As this thing came across, it lit up the sky. It looked like an incoming missile. In fact, many people thought there had been an attack on Russia. Some people thought there was a nuclear attack in Russia uh, as this meteorite came. It was fascinating to watch. Anyway, I, I digress. Uh, um, you and I watching that come down, watching that meteorite come down, we can both look at it, and one of us can decide it's a missile, and one of us can decide it's a meteorite. And the person who believes it's a missile, that's their truth. And the person who believes it's a meteorite, that's their truth. And the person who says that it's a, it's a missile can say, well, you know, what is the definition of a missile? This, this was a missile. It, it came down. It did damage. It was at a high rate of speed. Therefore, it was a missile. But it wasn't actually a missile. A missile, an object which is forcibly propelled at a target, either by hand or from a mechanical weapon. It's not really a missile. It looks like a missile, but it's not really a missile. It's just a meteorite. And there is an actual objective truth as to what that object is. And I think we as a country are headed in that trajectory where, I mean, we, we hear this in this postmodern era, this post-truth era, uh, where um, you have your truth, I have my truth, and everybody else has their truth. But what is the truth? I think we can get to the truth of things that happened. And peddling this nonsensical stuff that, well, abuse of power isn't impeachable, that's not the truth. The truth is that's what most impeachments have been about. It doesn't matter whether or not it's a crime. We should stop saying stuff like that.
Hello there. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, uh, 877-973-7425. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably time to go. I have, I've wanted to avoid this. I think it is such a nothing burger uh, in the grand scheme of things. It's just the perpetual outrage machine. But yes, the President of the United States referred to his impeachment as a lynching. And the media went wild. I don't think it's a legit. This is my problem here. You know how Democrats use the word racist all the time and it devalues what a racist is because if they don't like you, they call you a racist, even if what you said had nothing to do with racism. I think when we use the word lynching about an impeachment, that's a constitutional process. It devalues what a lynching actually is. Um, and it, it's, I think, something the Democrats would do. It's not something Republicans should do. And in fact, yes, the Democrats did this with Bill Clinton's impeachment. It seems to me that the process is being demeaned. And I have great faith in Henry Hyde, but old Henry better get on the job. Because unless he figures out how to corral this, no matter what happens, even if the president should be impeached, history is going to question whether or not this was just a partisan lynching or whether or not it was something that, in fact, met the standard, the very high bar that was set by the founders as to what constituted an impeachable offense. Uh, that was Joe Biden who referred to the impeachment of Bill Clinton as a political lynching. Uh, here's the supercut of the Democrats in 1998. How dare the president compare lynching to impeachment? My votes are a protest against an unfair process. The inequities in the impeachment process have been glaring. What we are doing or what we are doing here is not a prosecution, it's a persecution. And indeed, it is a political lynching. So I will not vote for this nightmare before Christmas. I will not vote for this lynching in the people's house. I will vote against these resolutions. Even if the president should be impeached, history is going to question whether or not this was just a partisan lynching. This day feels to me like we're taking a step down the road to becoming a political lynch mob. And for those of you who say that this isn't about sex, I agree with you. This is about getting rid of the President of the United States. The whole idea is a lynch mob mentality that says this man has to go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's kind of hypocritical for Democrats now to come out blasting this president for referring to it as a lynching when in fact, um, the Democrats themselves did. And you know, what's so funny is that some of the Democrats who are outraged now about the president, uh, using the word lynching to describe impeachment were Democrats still elected. That, that tells you how long some of these Democrats stick around. They were Democrats in the house of representatives, uh, when president Clinton was impeached and they themselves referred to it back then as a lynching. And now they're upset. Listen, it, it, this is what Democrats do. Democrats take these words and uh, they they take away their, their legitimate meaning. A lynching means something. Uh, it is a horrific act that happens. And the Democrats have taken that word and they've applied it to impeachments. Now they're outraged that the president's doing what they've done, which I think is unfortunate. And yet that's the... Um, that's kind of where we are. 
uh, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you real quick. I, I want to play some of this. What's happening in the house right now? As I'm talking right now, um, we've got a, this this weird hearing happening in the House of Representatives on Facebook, and I don't know that these members of Congress actually even know what Facebook is, and, and I'm sorry, I, I'm perplexed because I'm reading here as as I'm talking to you. I'm multitasking, which I should never do, but the um, this is so weird. The uh, this is about Facebook and privacy, and it's it wants to do a cryptocurrency, and yet this this is Maxine Waters in the House Financial Services Committee. They, She's got all this time. She's got the CEO of Facebook present to ask him about the Russians using the platform, to ask him about the cryptocurrency, to ask him about invasion of privacy. And this is what she focuses on. View the record. First, on diversity and inclusion. Facebook has utterly failed. Facebook's executive ranks and workforce continue to be mostly white and male. Since Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Push Coalition called upon Silicon Valley companies, including Facebook, to release its diversity statistics more than five years ago, the representation of African Americans and Hispanics has increased by less than 2%. Facebook also told us that they have zero dollars managed by diverse firms. On fair housing, Facebook has been sued by the National Fair Housing Alliance for enabling advertisers to engage in discrimination on its advertising platforms. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has also filed an official charge of discrimination against Facebook for its advertising practices, including the company's own ad delivery algorithms, which were found to have a discriminatory impact when advertisers did not target their audience in discriminatory ways. I understand that wait, Facebook has it, wait, refused wait, 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 wait. to cooperate. It, it had a discriminatory impact when advertisers did not target to discriminate. What on earth? With HUD's fair housing investigation by refusing to provide relevant data. On competition and fairness, Facebook is the subject of an antitrust investigation by the attorneys general's. I, I, what? What? But it went on from here. Um, um, Brad Sherman from California also went on a, a riff about this. Uh, this is this is this clip is uh, this is happening right now. We haven't had a chance to process it, but but I, I want to play you some of this from Brad Sherman too. Not here to be anti-Facebook. I was anti-cryptocurrency back when you were anti-cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency either doesn't work, in which case investors lose a lot of money, or it does achieve its objectives, perhaps, and displaces the U.S. dollar as the, uh, or interferes with the U.S. dollar being the sole reserve currency, or virtually the sole reserve currency in the world. That role of the U.S. dollar saves the average American family $1,000 in interest costs because money pours into the United States because of the role of the dollar. The Federal Reserve can turn over up to $100 billion in profits to the U.S. Treasury that we in Congress spend because of the power of the U.S. dollar. All right, let's fast forward and, and get to the, the, the charming nugget here. You've, and you should. You should create a payment system with a zero, with a close to zero fee. But the real money is in the tax evaders and to some extent the drug dealers. 
Uh, I know you've got uh, at least 100 lawyers that will tell you that what you're doing is legal and that you will be safe. But given the harm that this can do, they could be very wrong. Uh, so I'm troubled by this cryptocurrency thing. And for those of you who don't, I, I don't understand cryptocurrency. I don't know that I understand cryptocurrency enough to to tell you what it is. Essentially, it's based on uh, mathematical algorithms uh, where you generate coins tied to this algorithm, like Bitcoin. Uh, you generate money, it's tied to an algorithm, and the world governments can come in tomorrow, pass laws, and say uh, cryptocurrency is illegal, and suddenly it's illegal, um, and you've lost all the money that you put into it. Uh, they set up an exchange system between dollars and Bitcoin, for example, uh, and then people can mine. Essentially, they have their computers do mathematical computations uh, to find uh, certain numbers based on the algorithm that they convert them into this currency. Uh, that's, that is the, the best I can explain it to you. Uh, but it can be a highly secure system based on these algorithms. And Brad Sherman's concern is that drug dealers and terrorists will use cryptocurrency. That we're always concerned about drug dealers and terrorists these days. I mean, we, we really are. Let's just be honest. Um, and I, at least to his credit, to his credit, at least he's making it about the purpose of the meeting. At least he's making it about the... Um, about cryptocurrency, as opposed to Maxine Waters, who wanted to go after Mark Zuckerberg for diversity at Facebook in a hearing that was about a cryptocurrency. The, the whole thing is just bizarre. Uh, but So while I was talking, um, a buddy of mine sent me a, um, a, a video that he got. Uh, Grabian is a website where you can go to uh, G-R-A-B-I-E-N. Uh, it, it's a website we use here for show prep where you can go in and you can get the audio of, of the absurd things that people have said on TV. And, and one of the things that people can do as well is they can put up montages of prior clips. And someone apparently did that. I, a buddy of mine sent me a link and said, you got you to gotta check out this clip on Grabian. Uh, so I am on Grabian. I've got this clip. This goes back to the lynching situation. Uh, listen to this. What, what was a lynching? And Senator Cory Booker said the vicious attack on actor Jesse was an attempted modern-day lynching. Kamala Harris calling the attack. Attack, an attempted modern-day lynching. Which tweet? What tweet? Uh, the, about uh, saying that it is a modern-day lynching. That um, uh, sorry, <laughs> Jesse Smollett. Um, okay, so I will say this about that case. I think that the facts are still unfolding, and um, I'm very. Um, Concerned about all the information still coming out. I'm going to withhold until all the information actually comes out from on-the-record sources. Um, we know in America that uh, bigoted and biased attacks are on the rise. Somebody was tweeting for Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Neither of them actually had knowledge of having used the word lynch to describe lynching to describe. Uh, the Jesse Smollett case. Uh, by the way, have y'all seen the Dave Chappelle comedy on Netflix where he starts talking about the... <laughs> I can't play. It's it's too, too many bad words for me to play here, but it was hysterical. Um, and yes, many, many Democratic... Although clearly Kamala Harris had no idea someone had tweeted out under her name that it was a lynching. She, she clearly didn't like that. 
Um, but it's just, it's such a political thing. It, it, the thing to be outraged over, and you know what's so funny about it, is that yesterday Bill Taylor, the highly respected ambassador to Ukraine, gives some pretty, I mean, it, it's some pretty damning testimony yesterday. The White House is having a real hard time getting around it. And the media wanted to focus on the lynching word, use of the lynching word by the president instead of Bill Taylor. I mean, the, the bulk of the conversation in the media yesterday was that, um, that it was, it was a, that the president used the word lynching. Now, you should know um, that some of the Republicans are managing to push back uh, pretty hard. And uh, John Ratcliffe, one of the Republicans who is on the intelligence committee, uh, uh, on the intelligence committee, tried. And Kevin McCarthy went on Fox News to talk about this. And um, John Ratcliffe, he says, is kind of the guy who undermined what um, was said by Bill Taylor. In 90 seconds. We had John Radcliffe destroy Taylor's whole argument. Congressman Radcliffe, tell us what happened. Or well, we can't really talk about it, but what, what we're finding is just his questioning in 90 seconds refuted everything of what Adam Schiff believes out there. There is no quick pro quo. And the one thing that you find out in this process is all this information is just like that whistleblower. Remember, we haven't seen that whistleblower anywhere. Everything second, third, and fourth hand information. You know, what's so interesting is that I'm hearing from Republican members of Congress that this is their public face of this, but behind the scenes, they're a little bit nervous. Um, And they're they're building up what John Ratcliffe said. Here's Devin Nunes as well talking about uh, what uh, John Ratcliffe said. Well, I was down there most of the day in this uh, meeting with Ambassador Taylor. Uh, And once again, it was the same thing. Something leaks out to the Washington Post. Narratives are built. But the truth is, is that in two minutes, John Ratcliffe destroyed this witness. Uh, There's no quid pro quo. Uh, In addition, it it continues to be alarming to me the lack of the understanding at the State Department by the bureaucracy there about how much the Ukrainians were involved opposing Donald Trump as a candidate. So, you know, just not understanding that the Democrats had paid Christopher Steele for the dossier which he got information, according to Nellie Orr, from Ukrainians. This is really frightening that people in the State Department wouldn't have a clue, wouldn't understand why would, why would the president send Rudy Giuliani to Ukraine? Well, perhaps because they dirtied him up. And it would be his lawyer's responsibility to get over there to Ukraine, figure out what the dirt is to try to defend his client, which then was the president of the United States, going up against the Mueller witch hunt. Now, he's got a point there, and I think this is going to be a point. It's interesting to me how the media doesn't want to acknowledge uh, that there were some legitimate issues related to the president in Ukraine and the Steele dossier. But we're hearing this uh, repeatedly that John Radcliffe destroyed Ambassador Taylor's testimony in under two minutes, but we can't tell you how he did it. Behind the scenes, I can tell you that a number of these Republicans aren't necessarily sure. Essentially, what Radcliffe did was he, and again, we we don't know this for sure. Um, There are rumors circulating. There are people whispering on background. 
But what John Radcliffe did was pointed out that uh, Ambassador Bill Taylor actually has no knowledge of the president and, and Gordon Sunland's conversation. He, he, he didn't even talk to Gordon Sunland about the president and the quid pro quo. What, what he did is he talked to Tom Morris or Tim Morrison, who was national security aide. Tim Morrison talked to Sunland and Sunland told him what the president said. So it's not uh, secondhand, it's thirdhand information. And that was how John Radcliffe fixed on this, uh, that this isn't really even hearsay. Uh, it, it's, it's completely, th- none of this would be admissible in court. What uh, Bill Taylor suggested would not be admissible in court because it is he had no direct knowledge of it. He never heard the president say quid pro quo. He never heard Gordon Sunland say that the president told him these things. What he heard was that Tim Morrison told him that Tim Morrison heard Gordon Sunland say the president said these things, but Tim Morrison did not hear the president say these things. And that's how uh, Radcliffe destroyed Bill Taylor's testimony. But there's a problem there overarching all of this is that they can now call Tim Morrison. And there is an exception in hearsay. It is called the statement against interest. Tim Morrison can say uh, that Gordon Sunland said this. And it's a statement against Gordon Sunland's interest. May not go against the president because it's two parties removed. But it goes against Gordon Sunland. And they may not be able to get the president, but they can get Gordon Sunland. And if they're going after Gordon Sunland, does Gordon Sunland suddenly recall what the president told him and flip the table on the president? That's a problem for the president's team. Again, they need an overarching narrative here. They can't just say, John Radcliffe undermined Bill Taylor completely, but we can't tell you how he did it. They need an overarching narrative. Uh, Devin Nunez comes close with the Christopher Steele dossier, but they need a bigger narrative. Hello, the phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This, I got to tell you, this made me fall out laughing this morning. Um, Shinjiro Koizumi is a, um, who, who, he's the environmental minister in Japan. And this is actually, I, translations are funny. Um, he called the fight against climate change sexy. Uh, that's right. Uh, it was the, the fight is sexy. Um, the government had to make sense of his vow to make the climate change fight sexy um, because lawmakers asked for an official interpretation of his remarks from English to Japanese, and there's no way to actually translate the word sexy into Japanese to have it mean sense. And so they're befuddled as to how to do it. Um, so Koizumi at the United Nations said, quote, on tackling such a big-scale issue like climate change, it's got to be fun, it's got to be cool, it's got to be sexy, too. He implied that the term had been used during earlier conversations with a U.N. negotiator with whom he was speaking, and no one seems to understand um, what he actually means in Japanese. Uh, climate change is sexy. Oh my goodness gracious. Um, wow. Okay. So there, there, there we have it. Um, just bizarre. Uh, also McDonald's, I, I, I intended to do a longer segment on this and I've just run out the clock today. 
McDonald's is, wants to use artificial intelligence in its restaurants. You know, at some point, and I really do mean this, I, I've, I, I've got thoughts on this rise of the killer robot machine army that people keep talking about. Yeah, you know, the the people on the left are convinced, uh, now in the absence of a belief in God, that somehow we are going to create robots that will then enslave and kill us. And and it's all beginning at McDonald's, apparently. They want to sell more Big Macs. And so what McDonald's is, is doing, what people are warning McDonald's is going to do, is they want to use artificial intelligence to try to induce you to buy two Big Macs instead of one. And it'll be customized per person, and they will show you pictures that that make you lust after their hamburgers. Uh, really, just sell me sell me the fries. I, I don't need anything from McDonald's except the fries, hot and crispy. But one of the things they want to do is track your license plate, so when you pull up to the drive-through, they've already got your order ready, and you can adjust it. I kid you not. And it's freaking out artificial intelligence people. I so tomorrow, I, I we may have to set some time aside tomorrow and talk about artificial intelligence instead of talking about impeachment. It's a way more fun. It's a sexy topic. 